You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. That heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The, po- podca- the program is podcast. Just go to 3cr.org.au. There's a, a few hundred interesting podcasts and a few thousand boring podcasts, so you choose. We have fascinating guests. Now, unfortunately, Kelly Whitworth, the world's greatest producer, is sunning herself in the flesh pots, international flesh pots. She rang me today to rub it in and she said, Joe, I won't be there, but it's all organised. I've got JM <laughs> from Music Matters to do all the hard work. And I said, you mean TBE? And she said, who's TBE? And I said, Tech Boy Extraordinary. Hello, Joe M. How are you? Uh, hello, Big Joe. Big Joe. <laughs> oh, God, you're so cruel. Now, obviously, our guest is on the other line. Well, that's the way it happens today, actually. They're not in, they're not in here. Why not? Staring you what in have the you face. done? Well, who knows? We'll find out whether they were intimidated or just being smart. They were very smart. <laughs> Jay Coonan, are you there? I'm here. Over the phone. Over the phone. Now, Jay, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed. I understand you're a Melbourneite. Is that correct? That is one hundred percent correct, and I am uh, on the other uh, on the other side of the northern border. This so, uh, but I'll be back on Friday to the wonderful uh, Melbourne. Uh, you're not actually in Sin City, are you? I am. Oh, I can't believe this. <laughs> what are you doing there, mate? What are you doing there? Uh, well, uh, I'm up here for work, uh, where uh, my uh, comrade Kristen, who also works at the Anti-Poverty Centre with me, who helped mm-hmm. coordinate it, lives. And mm-hmm. we're just, uh, I had to come up for one of the wonders of uh, and that's meetings. So doing meetings and lots of uh, yearly planning. Um, so yeah. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Joe. Hang on, Joe. What's happened to Zooming? Is it all out of, is it out of favour these days? You just, you just want a tax-free junket to Sydney. 
<laughs> Especially in your... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope you're squatting somewhere, not in a seven-star hotel in Sydney. Certainly not. I've got a I've got a spare room house, so oh, excellent, you know, excellent. Got to cut corners everywhere, everywhere that you can. Yeah, it's not like Kelly Whitworth in some seven star international no. flesh pot. It's um, um, you know Kelly personally, don't you? Because she organised all this. No, I don't. I what? Don't she just rang you. Text messages, yeah, text messages and emails. Oh. Um, and when I was last meant to come on the show at the end of last year, I was in Perth. But I was visiting family, so uh, um, unfortunately couldn't come in then to meet Kelly and yourself. And then now right. you're stuck with me over the phone. No, we're not stuck with you. You're stuck with <laughs> us. <laughs> Get it right. We do. We ask the questions. You answer them. It's very simple. Ever been? Ever been arrested? Have I ever been? No, I haven't. No. Well, that, you, that's the way it goes. <laughs> they ask questions, and you either say no comment or you answer them. All right, and, okay. and get yourself further in the shit. So it's good to know we've got a clean skin on the air now. Just to get our listeners orientated, you sound relatively young to me. What what year were you born? I was born in 1991, so I'm on the, the precipice of young and old. No, no, you're on, you're on, you're not middle-aged, and you're not, not old. Yet. No, no, Joe and I, Joe and Joe, we're old. You're not, a, he's young, isn't he? 91. That's extraordinary. <laughs> What's that, 32 or 31? Yeah, 31, but 32 in November this year. Right. Uh Uh-oh, November. (laughs) Uh, We won't ask you the date in case people start, you know, harassing you online because of the work you do. You don't want to give information (laughs) like that away on 3CR because we will podcast the program. It'll be there for eternity. (laughs) The only trouble is I can't tell you the joke I usually tell at the end of the story because because we usually have 90-year-olds here in the studio and I say they can always use excerpts from the interview for their um, eulogies at their funerals. <laughs> well, okay. I can't say that to you because you're too young. So, <laughs> 31. Born in Melbourne? Yeah. No, I was born in Perth uh, in the northern suburbs. Uh, good old working class Perth. Yeah, well, it's not all working class. No, not the Cottesloe area. No, no. So, were you born in Cottesloe? No, I was born in a, a suburb just uh, called Glengarry at a hospital there. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, that's where I went to school nearby, both in pri- uh, public primary and secondary, oh. where I very near to where I was born. Oh, sounds particularly Australian, doesn't it? And don't tell me you you also went surfing and went to the beach and all that stuff. No, I'm not really a fan of the beach, to be honest, which is you know pretty odd for a West Australian to say that. But nevertheless, it's like uh, probably one of the reasons I moved to Melbourne. Well, I I can't stand sand between my toes and other parts of the anatomy. I assume you're the same, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's also just the water as well. Not not a fan of. Uh, Something as vast as the ocean. Uh, do, you, do you bathe? Uh, I do. Oh, well, that's Thankfully, good. Good to know. I just thought it was an aversion to water, now, but it's an aversion to the salty water. That's good to know. Yeah. So, are your parents still alive? Uh, they are. So, we can't say anything nasty about them. Obviously, you had an idyllic childhood. Uh, well, no. No? It wasn't idyllic. Um, no, so my parents separated when I was right. quite young mm-hmm. um, and uh, grew up with mum. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, uh, part of growing up was, you know, with a single mum in the 90s. She was from a Sicilian background, so she was pulled out of school. So she didn't really have much work uh, and work experience. So after, you know, being a single mum with two kids, she was, you know, on, hey. on the doll. R- yeah. Jai, compadre, como está? Fosse paisana. Hey, paisana. <laughs> you are speaking to two Sicilians. Did you know that? Oh, really? Yeah. So, no. So what, what part of, do you know what part of Sicily your mum came from? Uh, I do. And the town is called Sinagra, where which was is her maiden name. Um, and it is more in the north uh, east corner atop a mountain or in a hilly area. So never that's visited in the province. That's, that's in the province of Messina. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, oh, northeast. Wow. You know what Messina is famous for, apart from you know whom. <laughs> the unmentionables, apart from the unmentionables, do you know who Messina is famous for? No, I don't. Cake shops. Oh. It has one cake shop for each 600 people. <laughs> it is the cake shop capital of the universe. You'd agree with that, Joe, wouldn't you? Well, I don't think I've been there. I've just seen the clock at Messina. <laughs> what do you mean you haven't been to Messina? You're no, a Sicilian. The, no, I've seen the, the tower clock. I've been through and stuff, but I don't think I've been to that cake shop yet. There's thousands of them. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> well, that's so. Did your mum, um, when she came across, did she came across as a uh, a single woman, a migrant, or with a family, or? No, no. So my mum was born here. All oh, right. Um, my, yeah. So my dad is, you know, the, the mongrel uh, white Australian of English, Irish, and Scottish, and you know that mix. Oh, that's um, nice. But no, yeah. my mum was born here. So yeah. Unfortunately, uh, she's never been, but right. uh, neither have I. So, you know, that's one of those bucket list things that you want to do one day is well, go back. How old's your mum? How old's your mum? She's 61. 61. So the language issue is possibly the language wasn't um, transferred to you. No. No, definitely yeah. not. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. Now, look, well, yeah, I'm going to give you some homework, mate. <laughs> we always give homework on Radical <laughs> yeah. Australia. And if you don't do this, I'm going to haunt you and hunt you <laughs> for your mum's well, se- now hang on hang on hang on let me yeah, finish yeah. for your mum's 70th birthday you'll be taking uh-huh. her back to sicily for a well-earned right. holiday well, well, okay. wait till 70 Joe. oh no hang on he's he, he works for a poverty association <laughs> he doesn't get paid much he's got he's got to, he's got to save up okay thank you yeah <laughs> give me nine years yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you pay for the airfare. You got any rallies back there that you know of? Uh, not that I know of, no. Um, um, because my mum's grandparents moved over here just after the war, yeah. so I think the family connections are pretty uh, yeah. by now. Yeah, are the grandparents still around, or they wouldn't be really? No, would they? no, no. Nah. And I assume they were um, just hardworking, um, you know, labourers. That's what. Most Sicilians were when they came here initially. Yeah. Yeah. Chicken chicken farm and an olive farm. That's oh, what they uh, ran yeah, just Staple. Staple yeah. diet. Yeah, they they <laughs> were they were more than labourers, mate. They were landowners. That's what every Sicilian <laughs> that's what every Sicilian dreams about. Being a landowner. Isn't that right, Joe? Correct. Correct. <laughs> now, now, and 
uh, look, I'm going to ask you this. You can tell me to piss off, but do, do you have much connection with your dad, or is he, you know, he's just moved out no, of the picture? Not really. Not really. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I haven't, yeah, I haven't had much to do with for yeah. a decade or so. Yeah. yeah. And how about you? Got any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got two brothers. I've got an older and a younger brother. So, you know, the trope of the middle child going off into activism is, uh, you know, always wanting the attention uh, is certainly, I guess, a bit true there. <laughs> No, no, Joe. No, it's not the middle child. It's the firstborn that is the problem. <laughs> Never the middle child. The middle child is pliable. So your poor mum had to bring up three sons. Yeah, so oh, I was just my older brother and I, and mm-hmm. my younger brother is a half-brother, but, you know. Right. Oh, it's just, yeah, yeah, well, that's good. So where did you go to primary school? You know, we, we, do, we ask the deep questions here in Radical Australia. Yeah. Yeah, so I went to Dalmain Primary School, which is a it was a pretty small primary school in Kingsley in uh, WA. Mm. Um, very much then was you know a working class area with a lot of you know uh, of Howard's Howard's babies, all millennials with their yeah. tradey parents mm. bought all their homes in the late nineties and mm. paying off their mortgages mm. at reasonable prices to reasonable wages. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Did you did you learn to hate at primary school? <laughs> did I learn to hate? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you know, you know. There's I always there's always the school. other. You know, there's always the other, and you start early in life. You know, especially in some parts of the country. Oh well, I mean, it was very close-minded area, mm. uh, very white, um, and for that part of Perth as well, especially mm. the north. I mean, you don't really. Even the more working and poor areas, which is, you know, uh, further east of all of that, where, you know, there was more Indigenous and refugee populations mm-hmm. now, um, so it's kind of just been, you know, moved further out and it's more younger white families into the area now. Right. So, yeah, very, very, very white. Or uh, myself and a lot of my other friends from Perth like to call Perth Little Rhodesia, so... No, no, yeah. no. I've been to I, I've been to what was Rhodesia. It's not it's not little Rhodesia. It's big Rhodesia. <laughs> now, obviously, you uh, excelled at primary school. You're a great sports person. You're a great intellectual. Or did the teacher say could do better? No, just very average. You know, there's nothing remarkable about me. Um, bit of an oddball. Uh, not really into sports. That was more of my older brother's thing. So um, I I was athletic, if anything, but uh, wasn't very all too much interested in sports. Just a lot of reading and, you know, cartoons. What, in primary school you were reading? What's wrong with you, boy? Yeah, I know. What type of things really? were you reading at, at that age? Uh, I can't even remember. Just uh, there's a series of books and the inner... For any millennials uh, who would be listening, um, would have probably read the same thing. It was a, a series of books about collecting these gems. Uh-huh. And with each book on the spine, it was like added to the, uh, I believe, like a, a necklace or a um, kind of bracelet. But anyway, oh, so a lot of fantasy. Yeah. Great way to sell books. You have a little gem and you collect them. It's a little bit like Pokemon. <laughs> Pre Pokemon. <laughs> all right, all right. So, did your mum despair about you, or did she, you? You just were just 
nobody, non-existent, basically. You just kept out of the way. Yeah, not really. I think uh, that was more for my brother. Um, <laughs> Blame your brother, he, yeah. He's the oldest. He's <laughs> the oldest. No, uh, you know, I was pretty much just, I kept to myself. I did my own things and I mm. uh, was very independent. So mm. if anything, uh, you know, obviously concerns about your kids coming high school, but not in primary school, that's for sure. Right. So then you move to the big school. Do you move to the big school there where in year seven or year six? Uh, year eight. Year, year eight. Seven. Oh, they like to yeah. keep you boys down, don't they? You people down <laughs> in West Australia. Year eight, you go to high school. Yeah, first year of high school is year eight. Oh, what was that like? Pretty bad. Um, because the, the few friends that I did have all went to different schools, and uh, I didn't know anyone from my primary school who actually went to my high school, which is kind of surprising because it's one of uh, it's just a suburb over, so it's not mm. that far away, but there was another closer high school, which they all went to. So I uh, had to, you know, adjust to the shift of, you know, primary school to high school, mm. um, becoming a teenager and also being uh, trying to learn how to socialise is one of those things as well. It's very strange that uh, your stepfather and your mother sent you to this school which was further out. Any particular reason? Have they heard rumours about it or something? Well, yeah. So now that I'm actually thinking about why did I go? So the the school there that was in our catchment, which was Greenwood Senior High School, um, we had family friends who went there Mm -hmm. and, you know, they they did all the teenagers, getting into drugs and partying and all that stuff. And because they did that, my mum was like, oh, that, that school must be breeding children like that. I can't have that happen to my kids. So I'm going to send them to Dunkraig Senior High School, which is right. just a suburb right. on the other side of the freeway, yep. and that'll be better for them. Yep. And, that, and, that, <laughs> and that actually changed the trajectory of your life, you know. You send, a, you send a loner, self-contained loner, into a school where he doesn't know anybody. I like it. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how did you survive? Don't tell me you um, were reading books again. Well, there was a bit of that, but uh, I got over books and, you know, found music and teenager angst and, you know, weed. And uh, that kind of you know, set up my my kind of higher education, which I I didn't end up finishing, so I dropped out Excuse at me? the end of year 11. You didn't? You're not a high school graduate? <laughs> no, I'm not. What? What? Excuse me? Well, neither am I, Joe. Neither yeah, but we understand about you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a young man, a young human being, I should say. He's on the verge of greatness, and he didn't get to year 12. What made you leave? What what was wrong with the isolation and, you know, the taunting? And what was wrong with that? Yeah, just being told that, uh, you know, you better pick something in TAFE or get a trade, otherwise your life's going to amount to nothing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, not really giving you much alternative um, or hope for the future. And just saying, well, that's it. Your your life's over if you don't uh, do do as you're told. And uh, you know that wasn't very inspiring, to be honest with you. Was that your parents or the teacher? <laughs> Teachers. <laughs> the teacher. I think yeah. No, my mum was very, very obviously you know uh, mm. stressed and upset that I was refusing to go to school and school you know, refusal. Everything mm. everything. That sounds like um, the education in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> 
Look, so you, you mentioned the M word, which we don't like to talk about on this program. <laughs> I was punching my fist in the air, uh, Jay. Yeah, you no, mentioned that, no. That's, that, that, was, that was the road to ruin, music. Music. How, how involved were you in bands or you just secretly listened to it in your little bedroom? Yeah, so I uh, bought a guitar by doing chores for family, friends, mm-hmm. you know, weeding gardens and so forth. <laughs> um, and so, and I had a few music. I had a few guitar lessons, but mainly my music education came from my nan, who taught me piano mm-hmm. on my dad's side. Because yep. she was, I can't remember she did anyway. Um, but yeah, mainly played in my room and listened to you know the most apathetic uh, teenage music you could. Like Nirvana, I assume, at that age. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very... Yeah, teenage... You use the word teenage angst, Nirvana. Smells like teen... Oh, God. Oh, yeah, I'm disgusted with it. It was. So, anyway, that was that. But, like, I, I didn't really... Like, I got involved in a band after I left high school and moved out of the northern suburbs of Perth down to uh, uh, Fremantle, uh-huh. which is, you know, where all young creatives and activist types really yeah, end hang up. On, hang on, hang on, hang on. You weren't creative or an activist when you left high school. You've left out something here, mate. How did, how did that all happen? Was it the band? Was the influence of the band, was it? Well, no. I, so I didn't join a band until much later. I had mm-hmm. friends in high school who I, you know, we did music with and we always talked about um, joining bands. But... Um, uh, that never eventuated, and one of my, you know, better friends who I played with unfortunately passed away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that was one of the other driving forces to kind mm-hmm. of. Who, who was your friend? What was, what was his name? Let's let's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, he was. We went to high school briefly, and then he shifted to another school mm-hmm. um, uh, to do music. And um, you know, once year twelve came and. Uh, we all graduated, and before he turned eighteen in a few weeks, uh, he, you know, uh, unfortunately drowned in the family pool after hitting his head. Ooh. And um, mm. yeah, so but yeah, no, uh, like all that group of friends that we were with, you know, we constantly played music. Um, we, you know, travelled around and went to bush dooks and, you know, all the kind of creative and few hippie-minded people and mm-hmm. politics, culture, alternative culture um, started to pop up around that time as well. Yeah. So that's what inspired the shift mm. um, from suburban living. You know, Fremantle's always been a hotbed of activity in West Australia. I assume cheap rents. Yeah. Uh, well, in those <laughs> not days, anymore, not, not anymore. It's gentrified <laughs> now. There's not a hot bit of activity. It's people counting their superannuation and checking yeah. the uh, financial pages. And looking days. after their yachts. No, no, that don't look, <laughs> that don't, that's 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 further south, right? That's, he doesn't know anything, does he, Jay? About <laughs> Perth. I mean, the last time I was in West Australia, I don't know, it was 2008, but I was there. I yeah, went right. there in 19 to Fremantle before you were born. Decades before you were born, I went there in 1978 to meet the local anarchists who were punching oh, wow. above their weight in those days. And there's a few of them still in Melbourne, and there's still a few yeah. there. But uh, the local anarchists, and they were based in Fremantle because it was dirt cheap, 
and they could squat. This was in the 70s, yeah. Um, wow. So they were squatting in Fremantle? Yeah, in the 70s, yeah, as you did. Yeah, okay. As you did, you know. I remember one yeah. day I, I woke up, went out to the uh, balcony, and there's seven West Australian anarchists have turned up in Melbourne, you know, didn't want to wake us up, sleeping on the balcony, you know, and then want to be want to be entertained for the next two or three weeks. Oh, it's disgusting. I mean, it wouldn't be like that now. You'd ask them to pay money, wouldn't you? Now, well, you'd have to. <laughs> yeah, so how did you look? I, I don't want to ask you this because yeah. I don't know if you're into drugs, drug runner or anything. But how did you make a crust? Uh, in Fremantle. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so when I did leave school, my I was given an ultimatum: was if you <laughs> don't work, then you have to leave. And obviously, you know that was it wasn't very unrealistic for me to move out. So I just, I got into hospitality, working mm. at um, a, a, a cafe chain in WA called Dome. Um, and so that kind of just got me into hospitality. So when I moved down to Fremantle. Uh, and the share house that I was living in, the per- and a friend of mine who I was living with, she said, she get a job with me at Little Creatures Brewery. Um, and so that's where I worked for about oh, five years, I think. Five, five years. years. What did yeah. you do at Little Creatures Brewery? Did you <laughs> distill Little Creatures or, or did you shove, no. shove in the barley? What did you do or the malt or what? Just good old-fashioned hospitality, waiting tables, pouring pints. Um, mm. I gave brewery tours at one point. Right. Um, yeah, that, and it was just, that was, well, it wasn't really a 9 to 5. It could be you know, 12 to 10 p.m. on some weekends. Mm. But it was, yeah, just hospitality, music, right. parties, socialising. Um, yeah, during that period. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I don't drink alcohol. Normally, uh, but I'm really fascinated. How do you pour a good beer? Now you were at it for five years. Mm-hmm. How do you get the right yeah. consistency? That little white head on top, and it doesn't dribble down the side of the glass. And the way you hold the glass, I've noticed the angle. How did? You, how long did it take you to perfect that? Not long, honestly. Oh, you're kidding! <laughs> it's a very, very easy skill at best. Uh, uh, but you know that that people do, I, I you know, uh, have their own different methods of creating the most, you know, picturesque beer. Mm. And um, you know, so you know, my preferred method was you know, obviously getting the the angle, the angle right, and the the distance below the tap. Yeah. Uh, right as well to get the, the foam started and then gradually bringing it closer to just get that picturesque. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the picturesque. difference between your mob and my mob. We used to ask the bartender to wipe off the foam All so we them. get, yeah, because yeah. we wanted beer. We didn't want bloody foam. You, 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 you new age people, whatever you are, you know, it's all about the foam, you know, like the little thing on the cappuccino, the little flower. That's disgusting. No wonder you well, left Fremantle. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's the other thing with the whole, you know, uh, craft beer. I, you know, honestly don't like it or enjoy it much anymore after mm. having worked in it for as many years, mm. which is now my preferred beers is, you know, not tasting like flowers and uh, as cheap as possible. 
Well, look, Jay, you're going to find this hard to believe. You haven't even started on your activism and it's halfway through the program. And at this stage, Kelly Whitworth looks at me and says, Joe, it's time to tell people what's going on. This is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR broadcasting live on 3cr.org.au. We are chatting. You couldn't call this an interview. We are chatting with Jay Coonan in Sin City a Melbourne boy who's been led astray. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Now, Jay, um, when did you come to Melbourne? I moved to Melbourne in uh, June, July 2019. Whoa. So, you wasted all your life. You wasted all your life in West Australia. It took you till June 19, 2019 to come to Melbourne. Yeah, and only to be locked down six months later. <laughs> well, that was your reward. You, you weren't. Look, look, most people we interview in this program. <laughs> say they go to another city because they're chasing a partner. You weren't chasing a partner, were you? Don't disillusion me. No. So why did you come to Melbourne? Why did you make the decision? Well, yeah, so um, right before I left uh, Perth is when I started becoming more interested in politics because briefly in the, you know, the 2010s, I I was a journalist in Myanmar for two and a half years. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. Rewind, rewind, rewind. Rewind. You just let that flip past you. A journalist yeah. in Myanmar. How did the lad who didn't graduate, who was in a bomby, you know, musical band that never got anywhere, who poured beers for little creatures, turn up in Myanmar as a journalist? What's What's happening? What happened? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess it's a pretty, pretty, pretty odd one, but... Uh, I was obviously getting really bored of uh, uh, being in Perth and uh, leaving. I'd left the band. I'd been studying journalism and got interested in, uh, you know, Myanmar, mm-hmm. Burmese history. Uh, I was like, I want to go there one day. Um, one of my journalist lecturers, who's from Al- is a journalist from Algeria, moved here to escape um, death threats and, you know, potential... Mm-hmm. Uh, assassination. I, I told him that I would be interested in going to Myanmar one day to, you know, do reporting, and he, he was like, "Well, maybe you should just go and do it." And I was just like, "Well, that's a, not a bad idea." So I saved up some money, flew over there, and tried to do some freelance um, journalism. Uh, met a really good friend of mine who I'm still friends with today, um, and he, when I was going back to Perth, he was just like, "Well, why don't you just move back here and just commit to being a journalist?" I was like, "All right." So. Yeah, I did that, and I briefly worked for a English publication in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was just writing stories about politics, uh, you know, ad- uh, you know, political advocacy, student politics, um, and a little bit of the conflict, uh, ethnic conflict in Myanmar as well, um, for about two and a half years before I moved back to Perth. Yeah. Mm, I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, I'll know whether you're lying to me or not if you, if you answer this question incorrectly about Myanmar. If you were there for two and a half years, who set up the Myanmar military? 
Oh, who established it in its current form was uh, Bojo Ong San, who is Ong San Suu Kyi's father. Yes, but before that, what were its origin? Because they were obviously very strongly anti-British during mm-hmm. the Second World War. They were actually set up yeah. by the Japanese Imperial Forces. True, that is correct, I suppose, in order to get, yeah. well, you use them to throw the British out so the Japanese could move in. That's right, they were set up and they still yeah. got the same structures, I assume the same philosophy, the way they're working. Wow. Could you throw some light on the question of the Rohingya refugees? Were, um, what was all that about? Well, I mean, again, that that's a, it's a I guess, you know, a very long story, but um, because it goes back to you know the, the drawings of borders and uh, its proximity to you know Bangladesh, but uh, the Rohingya genocide, which it actually is, is just you know an ethnic group who is not recognised by the uh, Myanmar government and military, which is mainly the Ma, which is the main ethnic group, as mm-hmm. being native and seen as interlopers, um, and obviously in a very uh, poor country with a lot of social and uh, political issues, they utilise them as a scapegoat to uh, instigate the uh, group in Rakhine State, the um, Rakhine people, to essentially, you know, fight and murder. And that's where how these people, the Rohingya, end up in these camps and on boats and being forced back and forth over borders, and I mean, mm. that's been happening because, well, you know, mainly since the 60s, but, you know, it's obviously intensified nowadays in the past decade or so, right. more than a decade, yeah. Do, do you think, now that we've got a Burmese expert on the line, <laughs> well, me and my expert, I shouldn't use the word Burma, that's the old colonial name, um, do you think the current resistance has any chance of success? Uh, I do. I do believe that there, there is some room for success. Um, obviously, it isn't as organised or as well-funded uh, as a resistance group could be, but that would mean that they would be being funded probably by the West and there would be another sinister reason as to why they were giving them money. Um, but I, I think the general discontent with the uh, military will make it more and more difficult um, for the military to remain over time. And if, you know, other international countries get their act together, their acts together, they might make it a little bit harder for the military in the sense of, you know, through... Um, you know, allowing them to move money and weapons and, you know, all of that offshore, it might make it a bit harder. But I guess, yeah, it's going to be really just how long, I don't know. But I think, I hope there will be success one day because the last thing that should happen is that, you know, that the military and its high classes deserve to remain. Mm. What do you think of the Australian response, both the previous government and the current government, to what's going on in Myanmar? Oh, it's 
pathetic, honestly. It's mm. it's hard to say what their intentions are, whether they're well, we're we're happy to send play. we're happy to send money to Ukraine and tanks and but what have we yeah. sent to Myanmar? Nothing. Nothing. Um, gas companies. <laughs> gas companies. A bit of fracking, eh? There's <laughs> a bit Which of gas side? in Canberra. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. It's just like it's hard to tell whether they want to. You know, they're trying to keep their corporate mates happy by, uh, uh, um, or they're just trying to play diplomatic politics with, uh, you know, the Chinese. It's hard to say what their plans are, but it's just been generally useless and poor, poorly handled. Yeah. Look, I've been amazed at the. Uh I mean, we all, well, I shouldn't be amazed. I'm the convener of the West Papua Rent Collective, and obviously, you know, West Papua never rates a mention mm. in this country, and it's the same to, to a significant degree of Myanmar. You know, occasionally it bursts forth because of some atrocity. All right, so you left after two and a half years. What drove you out? Poverty? Um, yeah, well, it was kind of... Uh, started to understand my place in the world as a you know even though I didn't you know didn't grow up wealthy I was still from a very wealthy country and I'm you know obviously white so uh, I, and seeing the, the you know the poverty in Myanmar and the ease of what it is to for people to move in and uh, you know basically profit from um, a, you know an emerging capitalist country mm. uh, liberalizing democracy. And so there was that part of just like, you know, I'm what I'm doing here is kind of more bad than good. I'm not really helping. If I'm not helping, then I really shouldn't be here. Um, And, you know, you'd see UN people in flashy, fancy, full-wheel drives going to gated communities with cleaners and cooks and be paid, you know, hundreds of thousands a year or a year. Um, And they don't do anything. And they, you know, hide some of the atrocities of what's happening just so they can get contracts from the Burmese government, the Myanmar government. Mm. Um, so I started to kind of reckon with that, and I was just like, you know, it's not, I can't be here um, doing more harm than good by being here. If I want to do good, then I need to find other ways um, to, you know, if I want to help by working with uh, people of Myanmar rather than profiting or making an income from their liberalising economy. Right. So that did that mean you had to leave morally or did you... I mean, it's a, it's a tough decision. You've been there two and a half years. Yeah. Obviously, you've got friends and networks and... Mm. Yeah, like, uh, you know what? I probably didn't have to leave, but it felt at the time like the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah... Uh, whether I stayed, I still would have had to leave um, because of, you know, obviously the, uh, what's been happening recently with the civil conflict. But, um, yeah, no, then felt like the right time um, to kind of just come back to Australia. And, right. So and, yeah, you, returned to, you returned to little creatures, eh, and started pulling beers again, did you? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I was, I was working uh, two jobs um, mm. I couldn't get a Centrelink payment. Was put in debt because I was with I was in a relationship with somebody who earned too much. Right. When Centrelink found out, they put me in debt, cut off my payment, and uh, so I had to work two jobs and study full time. Right. So I was working at a cemetery cafe and pouring beers again to uh, pay off the debt and survive. <laughs> so when you were working at the cemetery cafe, uh, was there any laughter? You know. <laughs> Or did you have a one of these sourpuss faces? Why can't I hear? Why can't I see that question coming? 
<laughs> I mean, well, I, I've been I've been to cemetery cafes, and they can be an interesting experience. Yeah, I I, I think the, the the sadness is really resolved for the, uh, the 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 chapels or wherever the the funeral takes place. I never people really weren't too um, down when they were in the cafe before or after. That's right. <laughs> you knew that they were all about to cry. Yeah, yeah. I remember I um I. <sighs> You won't believe this what happened to me a few years ago. This person I'd met once made me the executor of his will so he'd be buried because he'd have no... Well, he'd be somebody to look after his body because he had no one, right? Yeah. I think it was too far. I was in Malaysia and somebody rings me to tell me this bloke had died and I was the executor and I said, what? I'd never heard of him. So I came back and I thought I'd do the right thing by him and we found his relatives, blah, blah, blah. And you were quite right. The highlight was the after party at the cafe, <laughs> with the lovely cakes and the cream cakes and everything. Well, that's how it should be. Yeah, yeah that was the highlight. Yeah, so you're pulling beers, you're paying off a debt. What do you study? I, I studied international politics and Asian studies. Oh, yeah, great, great combination to get a paying job, mate. Eh? Well, are you going to join yeah. the foreign, foreign Legion or something? <laughs> well, well, no. it's a French are everywhere, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, just just you know the second most exciting thing, which was DFAT, was the was at one point the goal, but uh, I just slowly began to realise that I did not want to do that or join the public sector at all, to be honest. Oh. Yeah. So, so what machinery of government and such? Yeah. So, what drove you to Melbourne? Um. Well. Uh, Perth just really wasn't cutting it, and um, I was enticed to move over because of the you know, vibrant political scene that is Melbourne. Um, vibrant, vibrant political scene. <laughs> did you did you ask the question about which media organisation he was working? No, for? he was freelance. He was working for a oh. Myanmar uh, yeah. English language yeah. newspaper. And that's it. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And, and doing freelance, trying to sell something to the Guardian occasionally. I didn't want to embarrass him. <laughs> <laughs> so, who gave you this idea that Melbourne had this vibrant political culture? Well, reading about, you know, <laughs> protests in the streets, more, you know, actual left-wing politics, right. although it's very, you know, splintered now that I've come to, you know, learn about it all. <laughs> um, it took you two years. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was... <laughs> He was he was locked down for two years. He came in two thousand and nine. Lots of reading in the lockdown. <laughs> exactly. He looked at all the splinter groups and the splinter of the splinter groups, and he decided, exactly. "I won't tell the old, I, I, I won't tell the old joke." Two trots, three factions. <laughs> That's rude. That's rude. I would never say that on air. So, so what did you do during the lockdown, Jay? Um, so during the lockdown, um, I quit my boring, uh, uh, what do you call it? Phone, phone, I was working for Ospol on the phone, phone, call centre job. There A call centre job, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, and I started doing policy and organising with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, that, has grown uh, up. With that, that doesn't pay. No. That's voluntary. I, 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 yeah. I knew that mob when they first started off. That that's they don't pay anything. What's wrong no. with you? <laughs> it's, 
Well, you know. Uh, Don't you want a cushy thing. UN job? Yes, no. Oh, God, no. Especially now that, uh, you know, obviously working, doing advocacy for, uh, you know, people who are around unemployment and particularly employment services and, um, you know, learning about, you know, administration of government, you you come to not really enjoy the state, um, which is, you know, probably one of the last things I feel like doing would be joining a bureaucracy, to be honest. So, so when you say advocacy work, what do you mean? What exactly are you doing these days? So nowadays, so uh, I was with the AUWU uh, to about May 2021, mm-hmm. um, and I left to focus more on policy advocacy, and that's what set up the Anti-Poverty Centre. So while the AEW is more, you know, um, mass mobilisation and organising, um, I am, a, you know, a, a bit of a wonk, to be honest. So I do enjoy reading, researching. Well, we know that. You told policy. us. You were doing it at a primary yeah. school. You had that fetish <laughs> at primary school, reading and learning and thinking. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so working more around that and trying to... Uh, like working with academics and other, you know, non-government and not-for-profits to try and get them to uh, be a little bit more uh, harsher with their, their demands and a little less of a light touch, which has not served anyone well in the past two more decades. So, yeah, um, whether that whether I'm not successful or this is a bit too glib for me, you know. I'm a simple person. What what does it mean, nuts and bolts? What do you do? Whose doors do you knock on? Um, who funds you or are you self-funded? Mm. How does it yeah. work? And, and are there mechanisms by which other people who may be listening, who may be interested, you know, who are at a loose end um, can get involved? Yeah, so we are funded, well, at the moment, we just take donations from people who are kind enough uh, to, you know, if they have an income, they they give money to us, which mm-hmm. we're very grateful for. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the job seeker payment uh, at the moment, so that's how I pay my bills. But, mm-hmm. um, the you know, the donations is how we manage to, you know, organise events, which, you know, uh, last year we went to organise a protest in Adelaide and, uh, in you know, organise it with AUWU. We did that in Sydney as well uh, in the middle of last year. Um, and uh, so that's what, you know, one part of what we do. And if people want to find out what we do, they can jump on our website, which is antipovertycentre.org. Um, and there's a bit more information on there. But I'm not on the, I'm not on social media, so unfortunately people can't find me there. No, that's fair enough. I mean, a lot of people aren't. Now, let's get let's get back to this. You say policy development. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean? Does it mean you sit down and you work out a different way of trying to resolve the issue that isn't dependent on government and the private sector, or do you work out a way by which you can interact with say, non-government organisations so that they change, there's a shift in their policies? Yeah, so at the moment what we really do, for example, um, there's a, you know, 
uh, an inquiry into Workforce Australia, which is the latest uh, employment services. So uh, as part of that inquiry, we've gone and run you know, workshops with people in these services to develop the policies uh, and the positions that we're going to submit uh, into the inquiry. Uh, and not only that, we also take it and share it. So, you know, I talk with other academics who focus on, you know, welfare compliance, you know, from the University of Melbourne and um, a few other Victorian universities and in other states as well, um, and kind of just share, you know, the importance of actually bringing, you know, people who are impacted by services to actually make decisions for themselves and to not have such like a kind of paternalistic research mindsets and um, dictate terms to politics of how it should operate um, because that's the responsibility of the community and not, you know, anyone else. Yeah, I always... Oh, look, don't take this the wrong way, Charlie, but I've always had a, an issue with people using the word welfare. I call it a social security system. It's a social security act. It's actually not welfare. I mean, welfare is a demeaning term, is in my opinion. You know, the way yeah. it's used, like dole. You know, we dole out a bit of food to you. You know, while you're working on the Great Ocean Road, yeah, all that type of stuff. But that that's that's just my peccadillo. <laughs> so don't worry about it. Yeah, because I think I think you're playing to people's hands when you use the words welfare. You say we we need an adequate social security mm. system. Maybe even uh, you, Obviously, you look at things like a living wage as part of policy shift, do you? Or? Yeah, definitely do. Um, that's the biggest... Uh, the, our biggest demand is uh, payments to the Henderson poverty line as mm-hmm. a, you know, a short to medium term um, kind of resolution, but it's obviously not the solution uh, because a lot more needs to be done structurally to prevent poverty. Um, but obviously, the biggest thing that people rely on is money. And if they don't have enough of money, then you know what do they they go they go without, um, and it further complicates and uh, you know destabilizes them within the community. So, yeah, that's our biggest demand. And our second is to you know get rid of all mutual obligations, um, so that people can you know are free to do what they want and they want and how they want, uh, as they were in COVID. Mm. Right after the lockdown. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got I've got a lot of well, some I don't have friends, I have acquaintances who've been long term unemployed for a while, and they've noticed in the last few years as the unemployment rate mm. dips that all these agencies are being relatively kind to them because they need the income. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm old enough to remember when Centrelink, well, not Centrelink, you know, the job agency, whatever it was called, was not yeah. privatised. You know, you'd walk in. <laughs> You'd walk yeah. in, there'd be jobs on the on the wall, you'd pick a job, you go down, you know, you go, you go down and apply. I mean, these days, yeah. as you said, mutual obligation, it's just, it's it's, te- it's state terrorism. Let's call it what it is. It is, yeah. It's the state forcing you to jump through hoops in order to receive, you know, yeah. a, a below-the-poverty-line payment at the end of the day. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's state-led coercion and abuse, um, and it's, you know, it destroys people's lives. Mm. Uh, obviously, you know, that's one part of it. And then you see other things like, you know, robo-debt, and we're learning more about the machinations of government through that, which is another horrific and disgusting kind of thing that, you know, I would hope would, you know, begin to change uh, the way that people think or what they think, what they know about, you know, you know, social security and so forth. 
is actually wrong and rather just uh, a bunch of politicians playing games to bludgeon the poor. Well, that's right. Robo-debt, as I've said, particularly over the last few months, is nothing more than state terrorism. You're using illegal mm. processes to illegal coerce money out of people. If you did that and I did that, we'd be in jail. Yeah. They just go, they just go to the Royal Commission and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry about it. I can't recall. <laughs> it was the bureaucrat's fault. Well, that's right. That's what a bureaucrat's exactly. for, you know. We only make the policy. They implement the policy. But it does. Yeah. But it's it, it's Not horrendous. Not bureaucrat's policy, other ones. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. people die. Their lives are, you know, they commit suicide. Their lives are turned yeah. upside down. Because I was listening to a coroner. I like listening to coroners because they usually have a good insight into what's happening. <laughs> and the coroner was talking about the increased suicide rate in Victoria. Mm. And we're yep. usually told, you know, it's drug, accidental drug overdoses, this and that. And the, co the coroner specifically mentioned financial hardship and, yep. and that um, people do take desperate measures to get out of financial hardship because they see no yep. other way. And it, it, is, it, is, exactly. it, it, is, it is tantamount to state murder, you know? And, yeah, social murder. Uh, is what and, it is. Yeah, and it's been it's it's and it's been increasing. I mean, during COVID nineteen, the suicide rate was relatively stable, while everybody yeah, said it wasn't. But, but but now, well, usually in a crisis, a national crisis, suicide rate drops, and psychiatric and especially anxiety related issues uh, decrease because you've got mm. bigger problems to think about. But the coroner has noticed over the last six months. Uh, about a 15% increase in suicides, and he, and he was suggesting that uh, obviously financial hardships is part of it. How do you cope on such a extraordinarily low wage? Mm. Well, I mean, I'm, I feel somewhat sheltered by it because I have, you know, I know how to advocate mm. um, for myself after mm. two years. Um, which a lot of people, particularly when you're living in poverty, is forced to isolation and you don't really have a lot of other social supports. And, you know, some of those things can make it a bit harder. But, you know, thankfully I've got, you know, a good social network around me. Um, I am able to get some paid work from time to time um, if I need a, need a top-up. Um, you know, I'm not disabled. Uh, uh, so that, you know, hmm. allows, you know, gives me an extra... Uh, you know, boost, which, you know, a lot of people who are on job seeker, you know, are disabled and they're not, you know, on the disability support pension, but that's another thing. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm able to get money from time to time to make sure that, you know, I can have something set aside when it does get particularly tough. But, yeah, no, majority, my income is predominantly from, yeah, job seeker and supports from friends and by, you know, learning how to self-advocate, which is something that we also try to do um, is let people know their rights, let people know what, you know, job agencies can and can't do, when to go and talk to a community legal centre and when to put in complaints and how to put in complaints as well. We've only got about two or three minutes left, about two minutes. So if you had a magic wand, how would you improve things? How would you, not end poverty, but... What measures do you think need to be introduced to actually um, decrease poverty in the community? Well, I think it would just be going back to what I said earlier, and that's just making sure that uh, payments are at a livable rate. 
um, so that any you know everyone can afford to buy food, um, you know, afford to do things that they want to do, uh, but also you know have more public or you know community owned housing, which will prevent people to not have to worry about having to you know have a roof over their head, being able to live where they want to live, um, live how they live. Um, and, you know, I think we'd be a far more, not productive in the capitalist sense, but productive in the communal sense of, you know, making sure that we're all happy and healthy and providing for one another. You know, that's, that's product, production to me. Well, Jay, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's, uh, you're an extraordinary human being. As we say, ornament, an ornament to the movement. You're on the Christmas tree there. Bright, shining brightly, and we need more people like you at your age. So uh, you've made an extraordinary choice, choices in your life, and I wish you all the best for the future. And if you're not back here on Friday and I hear about it, we're going to send a search party up there to save you from all that sin up there in Sydney. And we probably expect you to pay a visit to 3CR as well. Oh, yeah. I think that would be a great idea. I, mean, I haven't uh, been able to visit the 3CR yet because every time what? I've done an interview like breakfast or anything has been over the phone or in lockdown. So, well, we're, uh, we're not in lockdown. You prefer to go to Sydney than right. to come to 3CR. <laughs> Look, I, I think I'm going to take everything back I said about you being a wonderful, <laughs> extraordinary human being. Yeah, there's always a sound of applause, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a way out. Yeah, he just doesn't want to come here. He's like the rest of them, you know. They, you know, they make their name at 3CR, they move on, then they refuse to They refuse to give us money yeah. during the radio fund. Oh. Subscriber drive, yeah, next week. Yeah, yeah. He could be a special No, guest not Jay. No, no, he doesn't need to be a subscriber. He's doing a lot of good work. No, just a lot of good work. Yeah, That's, yeah, for, the stop. That's for the listeners. Yeah, but Joe, Joe. Right. What? You're a tech boy today. You're not the producer, so, you know, let, all right? Let, Kelly can say things like that. Right. You can't. Well, I might right. play an appropriate song to go away in the next couple of minutes. How's that? All right, Jay. Well, thank you very much for thank talking you. to us. Thank and I'm sure uh, it was a little bit – it was entertaining, but it was also exceptionally serious, all the things you've been uh, talking about. So uh, all the best. Thanks, Jay. Thank you very much. Catherine. CR received its community radio license in 1976. Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 
call 03-9419-8377 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.